Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join me today. I've got so much fun stuff to talk about. Yes, we're going to get a little politics in there, but we have some other things that uh, hopefully will expand your understanding. And who knows, if you're not careful, maybe even warm your heart. In fact, that's that's kind of where I would like to start today. So this has been a momentous week for my family and me in that uh, my daughter got a puppy. I know this this is uh, boy this is important news Brian in the grand scheme of things the world falling apart around us you're telling us how your family got a dog well okay you got to understand though uh this was one of those cases where getting a pup you know required some consensus on the part of her husband and her and they have a little boy and anyway some of you'll recognize this is not it's not the kind of unilateral decision that's often made and that, that goes over well when someone just shows up with, hey, look what I got. I got a dog. But she did. She got this wonderful little uh, black lab golden retriever cross. His name is Jake. And I, you know, once again, I'm reminded of just <clears throat> how utterly adorable puppies can be and how smart they can be. And I don't, it's not that I, I'm not anti-dog, I'm not anti-cat, so please, anybody who thinks that I'm, I'm taking sides here by, you know, by coming down on the side of, wow, dogs are so cute. This doesn't mean I hate cats, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like, uh, if you haven't held a baby for a long time, you can forget what an amazing and, and, and purifying experience, almost a reset of your whole mentality that comes over you when you hold a newborn baby. And it's just, it's being in the presence of just that, that innocence that, that kind of makes you go, oh, yeah. Yeah, we were all like this once. And, and there's something similar that happened in, in getting acquainted with this little puppy, Jake, that uh, just stirred my heart and made me go, oh, dogs are so awesome. And, and they can be. And, and so when I saw this article today, I thought, I'm going to share this because somewhere someone will appreciate what, what this has to say. This is from phys.org, as in P-H-Y-S dot org. What makes dogs so special? Science says love. Now, the article starts by pointing out the idea that animals can experience love was once anathema to the psychologists who studied them, seen as a case of putting sentimentality before scientific rigor. But there's a new book out that argues that when it comes to dogs, the word is necessary to understand what has made the relationship between humans and our best friends one of the most significant interspecies partnerships in history. Clive Wynn, who founded the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University, makes the case in Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. Now, the 59-year-old animal psychologist started studying dogs back in the early 2000s. Like his peers, he believed that to ascribe complex emotions to them was to commit the sin of anthropomorphism until he was swayed by a body evidence that was growing too big to ignore. In an interview with AFP, the Englishman said, I think there comes a point where it's worth being skeptical of your skepticism. Now, canine science has enjoyed a resurgence in the past couple of decades, much of it extolling dogs' smarts. Titles like The Genius of Dogs by Brian Hare have advanced the idea that dogs have an innate and exceptional intelligence. Wynn, however, plays spoil sport, arguing that Fido isn't just that is just not that brilliant, rather. Pigeons can identify different kinds of objects in 2D images. Dolphins have shown that they understand grammar. 
Honeybees signal the location of food sources to each other through dance, all feats that no dogs have ever been known to accomplish. Even wolves, dogs' ancestor species known for their ferocity and lack of interest in people, have shown the ability to follow human cues, including in a recent Swedish study, by playing fetch. So Wynn proposes a paradigm shift, synthesizing cross-disciplinary research to posit that it is dogs' hypersociability or extreme gregariousness that sets them apart. Now, apparently one of the most striking advances that comes from the studies regarding um, comes from studies regarding oxytocin, which is a brain chemical that cements emotional bonds between people, but which is, according to new evidence, also responsible for interspecies relationships between dogs and and humans. Recent research led by Takafumi Kikusui at uh, Japan's Azabu University has shown that levels of the chemical spike when humans and their dogs gaze into each other's eyes, mirroring an effect observed between mothers and babies. In genetics, UCLA geneticist Bridget von Holt made a surprising discovery back in 2009. Dogs have a mutation in the gene responsible for Williams syndrome in humans. That's a condition characterized by intellectual limitations and exceptional gregariousness. Wynne says the essential thing about dogs, for, as for people with Williams syndrome, is a desire to form close connections, to have warm, personal relationships, to love and be loved. Now, numerous insights have also been gleaned through new behavior tests, many of them devised by Wynn himself and easy to replicate at home with the help of treats and cups. One involved researchers using a rope to pull open the front door of a dog's home and placing a bowl of food at an equal distance to its owner, finding that the animals overwhelmingly went to their human first. And apparently uh, magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging has drilled down on the neuroscience, showing that dogs' brains respond to praise as much or even more than food. Okay, now I have a dog, Bodie, that uh, he might test the, the limits of that theory, but isn't that fascinating? Although dogs have an innate predisposition for affection, the article says it requires early life nurturing to take effect. And nor is this love affair exclusive to humans. Apparently a farmer who raised pups among a penguin colony on a tiny Australian island was able to save the birds from marauding foxes in an experiment that was the basis for a 2015 film. So for when the next frontiers of dog science may come through genetics, which could help unravel the mysterious process by which domestication took place at least 14,000 years ago. Now, Wynn is an advocate for the trash heap theory, which holds that the precursors to ancient dogs congregated around human dumping grounds, slowly ingratiating themselves with people before the enduring partnership we know today was established through joint hunting expeditions. And it's a lot less romantic than the popular notion of hunters who captured wolf pups and then trained them, which Wynn derides as a completely unsupportable point of view, given the ferocity of adult wolves who would turn on their human counterparts. New advances in the sequencing of ancient DNA might allow scientists to discover when this crucial mutation to the gene that controls Williams syndrome occurred. As for when, he says, he guesses maybe eight to 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age, when humans began regularly hunting with dogs. Now, what makes these findings important beyond advancing science is their implications for dogs' welfare. This means rejecting brutal pain-based training methods like choke collars based on debunked understandings of dominance, populized, popularized rather by celebrity trainers who demand dog owners become pack leaders. Wynn says all your dog wants is for you to show them the way through compassionate leadership and positive reinforcement. 
It also means carving out time to meet their social needs instead of leaving them isolated for most of the day. He says our dogs give us so much, and in return, they don't ask for much. So you don't need to be buying all these fancy, expensive toys and treats and goodness knows what's available. They just need our company. They need to be with people. Fascinating article, and it makes me think of the the, the joke about uh, lock your spouse and then lock your dog in the trunk of your car and see which one is happiest to see you when you open it two hours later. It's always going to be your dog. I don't know. I, I, I see on a fairly regular basis uh, when, when someone's family pet has to be put down, particularly if it's their dog, and, and the grieving is just as real as can be. I mean, if, if there was ever a case to be made that, oh, yes, you know, our, our pets are family members, I, I would say with dogs, absolutely, that seems to be the case. And I, I'm happy to see that science is in some ways picking up on this and reinforcing it. I mean, I don't know if you, most people don't seem to feel too shy or too awkward about, uh, you know, about the dog being one of the kids. In fact, some people take it to an extreme. In fact, some people, you know, we, we see support dogs everywhere. We see pseudo support dogs, people that, uh, that can't go anywhere without bringing their dog with them. Now, I have a theory. And, and it's, it's worth exactly what you paid for it. But uh, this goes back to a conversation I had some years ago with a woman by the name of Sarah Manet. That's going to ring a bell for some of you. For those who don't know her, Sarah Manet is a remarkable person. I believe she's still around. She had a very difficult life, so difficult at least at one point she tried to commit suicide. And she had, uh, I guess, what people would call a near-death experience at that point. She, you know, left her body. She went to the spirit world. She was shown a number of really remarkable things. I've never forgotten one of the experiences that she related, which was when she was in the spirit world or in paradise, as, as you might call it, she met a dog. And I, I think she said it was like a beautiful Irish setter that came up to her. And the thing that, that really blew her away was... The dog was able to communicate with her, not talking like you and I would talk, but uh, spiritually there was a communication of love and affection for her. And she said it was given to her to understand that that dogs like like humans are intelligence. They're a lesser degree of intelligence, but that doesn't mean that they aren't valuable in God's sight. It just means that uh, they have a different purpose to fulfill. But I've never forgotten that, uh, you know, obviously in, in her take... Dogs are part of God's plan, and I think most people, at least those who believe in God, would say, you're darn right they are. We'll be back right after these messages. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'll ask you to hold your calls until the next hour of the show. I, I'm starting out today with the, with kind of the good, feel-good, warm, fluffy stuff. This is like eating dessert first. So if, if you're getting a little bit of a sugar overload, hang in there. I've got some totally depressing political news I'll be sharing with you a little bit later on in the show. But I thought uh, this might be a great place to begin. And uh, we talked about dogs in the last segment and how science says uh, it's, it's the fact that dogs can love us that makes them so special. And I want to want to springboard from that into another interesting topic. Uh, this was from Hunter Estes on intellectualtakeout.org. Now, this is kind of a blanket statement, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Does it seem like millennials struggle 
to feel happy or at least struggle to find happiness in life. I know it's you know when you take a broad approach like that. Well, now some may find it easy, others may struggle, but generally there seems to be some some pretty serious angst that is part of the persona of the millennial generation. If you had to say, well, what makes them millennials? I'd say that angst is a part of it. And Hunter Estes says the reason for this is because millennials are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. He says the divide between my millennial generation and older ones is stark. While millennials are better educated than prior generations, we are also the least happy. Millennials have higher rates of anxiety, are generally disengaged at their jobs, and are deeply fearful about the future. Now, some would argue that these feelings are the natural consequence of a world filled with greater uncertainty. But he asks, are we truly living in a more uncertain time than the Cold War or the Great Depression or other traumatic periods in American history? With unprecedented wealth and prosperity levels and general global stability, rather, the evidence seems to suggest otherwise. And so he says something else must be causing the worrisome downward trend in millennial emotional health. And he says, I have an idea of what that cause might be. He says, in college, my classmates and I were constantly encouraged by fellow students, professors and speakers to, quote, pursue our own truth and do what makes us happy, end quote. He says, even at my alma mater, Georgetown, a Catholic university, morality and truth were little more than relativistic tools to be used at our disposal and justify immediate gratification. Now, he says, universities were once intended to be bastions of academic freedom, in which young scholars grappled with big ideas, pursuing truth with a capital T. Today, we're encouraged to dive into any field of study we care for with little guidance and or constructed hierarchy when it comes to valuable knowledge. Our professors told us we could find purpose in temporal affairs, yet we somehow lost the sense that we were part of something greater. He says we substituted a wholehearted pursuit of the truth for our truth. I see the difference there. Now, Hunter Estes says the dominant philosophy today is built on a self-focused worldview that everything we need to know can be found on our own. The idea of pursuing one's own truth requires a great deal of pride, and it gives a false sense of comfort to the individual that he or she can look within to determine all that is right and wrong and needs little beyond that. Now, those who do so, however, find themselves disappointed by the shallowness of the world, lacking answers to difficult questions and grasping for deeper meaning with no avail. So he says, perhaps it's time for us to seek alternatives. Declining rates of religiosity correspond with millennials growing disenchantment with the world. Huh, interesting. Studies consistently show religious participants to be happier and more engaged members of society, but millennials are largely missing out. Religion provides an individual with a community of people who care about one another's well-being. Those involved in organized religion show a greater likelihood to vote engage in charitable giving, and volunteer for service organizations. Religion also provides a foundation and worldview through which to interpret the events of the world and process tragedy and grief. He says those who join a religious community have access to a rich history of thinking. Rather than each individual assuming the burden of defining their own moral code, crucial to most faiths is the willingness to humble oneself at the doorstep of history and recognize the thoughts and ideas of those who've gone before. Man's search for meaning continues, he says. The question at hand is whether young people will continue to cut themselves off from the institutions which offer the deepest opportunity to discover the greater truth which exists beyond our own selves, 
or instead continue to find themselves persistently unhappy. He sums that up by saying we must reject the moral relativism perpetuated by our current culture and education system. Instead, we need to recognize that the greatest truth is often found only beyond our own selves. I want to go back to something he said here and and just um, add my testimony, if you will, to uh, to the truthfulness of that. And that is the idea that the willingness to humble yourself at the doorstep of history and recognize the thoughts and ideas of people who came before is, I believe, an essential part of becoming a well-rounded person. And I don't believe this just because, you know, well, because that's what I think and therefore it must be right. I believe this because it's something that I've actually put into practice in my own life and have found incredible value in doing so. Now, this wasn't something I arrived at by myself. Many, many years ago, I attended a seminar. I believe it was called Face to Face with Greatness. And uh, my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks, was teaching the, the course. And what he was doing was making the case that it is worthwhile for us to pick up old books, classics, if you will, in the sense that there's something new you can learn every time you pick up, doesn't matter how old it is, and to read them and study them and ponder and discuss them. Now, I'm talking about difficult books. If you've ever read, I'll just throw out there, for instance, Plato's Republic. I know, I know. It's, oh, great, you're throwing out the, uh, throwing out a little uh, intellectual uh, gang sign there for everybody. Yes, yes, I've read Plato. I, I want to confess something. The first time I picked up Plato's Republic and started reading, um, it gave me a headache that made me want to stop and never pick it up again. It was just, it was difficult. I'm, and I'm a fairly good reader. I've been reading since before I ever got into kindergarten. My mom taught me how to read. Books have been a part of my life. But it was so challenging because the level of dialogue that was taking place there was so far above my head that uh, it, it was painful, physically painful to try to get my mind around it. What I found, though, was that as I persisted and more importantly, as I discussed it with my fellow students... Understanding came little by little. It wasn't all in one fell swoop. Bam, you're smart. Now go forth and, you know, make the world a better place. It's a process. And that little experiment led to reading more and more of the books of Western civilization. I'm, I'm with Mortimer Adler and uh, Robert Hutchins in that uh, I believe that's, that's where a person can really start to become a well-rounded individual by examining what the great minds who came before us had to offer. And I'm not limiting it just to the books of Western civilization, but I will say those are probably the most available. You can find at a garage sale a complete set of the great books of Western civilization, either the 54-volume set or the 61-volume set, and often you'll find them for pennies. Why? Because mostly they've been sitting around collecting dust. You know, they decorate somebody's bookshelf and, oh, yes, I have many important uh, leather-bound books that uh, show how, how smart I am, but they've never been opened. Well, when you delve into these books, you get a chance to to see how did Aristotle see the world? What did Kepler have to offer the world in terms of understanding? And and the list goes on and on. Uh, Virgil, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't even begin to name it because I've frankly, I've forgotten a lot of the ones that are in there. Rabelais, there's one that'll get your attention and put some hair on your chest. Why would these books written so long ago? We're talking going back 3000 years in some cases. Why would they still have something to offer us? 
Well, because they represent some of the finest efforts of some of the finest minds ever to grace this earth. And, and to be honest, yeah, there were things that these guys got wrong. There were, there were places where their insights were limited. But it doesn't mean they don't have something valuable to offer in terms of how to examine various things that humanity has discussed and struggled with and still continues to discuss and struggle with 3,000 years later. You want to become a more well-rounded person? You want to lose some of the shallowness and, and see the good in the world and be better equipped to go out there and make more good in the world? Pick up old books, study them in your old time, and be amazed at what happens. It's a very real transformation. Hey, once again, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Hey, if you are finding value in either the articles that I share, the guests that I interview, the the things that are discussed, can I ask one small favor? And that would be share this with a friend. Let other people know that, uh, hey, there's a source you can go to that uh, may actually add some value to your uh, day-to-day quest for knowledge or for truth and light. I don't claim to have cornered the market because I certainly haven't, but I do find some truly interesting things in the course of my day and do my best to share those things that hopefully will provoke some thought and in some small way help better understand the world around us. I don't always get it right. Sometimes I fall flat on my face. Sometimes I swing for the fence and, and miss. But there's always something worthwhile to consider. And I would ask if you find something that's uh, that's making uh, making it worth your time or causing you to to think at a slightly deeper level than before, whether you agree or not, please feel free to share that with your friends. You can do it by pointing them to LovingLiberty.net, by encouraging them to download the app. It's free for Android or for iPhone and uh, and just help spread the word. Podcasting is an amazing thing. And the best part of all is you can listen whenever it suits you. You don't have to be hanging right by the radio or right by your phone or digital device in order to participate. All right, let's get back to the program. Got a couple of different things that I've been thinking about here. Uh, This is one that I stumbled across from uh, Jeffrey Tucker the other day about uh, surviving the left-right polarism. And it's it's an election year, so I understand there's probably a little more of a surplus of this than we would see in, uh, in any other year. But he says the rise of political extremes in America, both left and right, poses a particular challenge for those of us who prefer liberty over government control. And by the way, it's not just here in the U.S. Jeff Tucker points out it's the same, uh, you know, the same kind of uh, polarization is growing in the U.K. and Europe and Latin America and Brazil. He says as the old managerial elite in all countries loses credibility and power, socialist and nationalist forms of statism are vying to take their place while relegating liberalism, by which he means love of liberty, to the political margins. So to survive and thrive, he says, we're going to need greater confidence in who we are and what we believe about the social order, clarifying and focusing on what liberty looks like and what precisely we're going for, while avoiding partisan traps along the way. In particular, he says, we need to avoid being lumped in with movements, rightly or wrongly, by expedient or intellectual error, that are contrary to our tradition and philosophical longings. Now, in case you haven't heard, Jeff Tucker says, for example, many academic and media observers are on a hunt to discover the origin of the nationalist resurgence 
and particularly its most bizarre and violent segment of the alt-right. To the horror of many dedicated intellectuals and activists in the liberty space, some academics and journalists have tried to link this movement backward in time to the libertarian political movement as it developed over the past two decades, and by extension the rise of the Trump-controlled Republican Party. Now, Jeff Tucker says it should be obvious that in theory and contrary to what the socialist left has long claimed, there is no connection between whatsoever between what we call libertarianism and any species of rightist ideology. One negates the other. As Leonard Reed wrote in 1956, liberty has no horizontal relationship to authoritarianism. Libertarianism's relationship to authoritarianism is vertical. It is up from the muck of enslaving men. And yet today there does appear to be, at least superficially, a social, institutional, and even intellectual connection and migration between what's called the liberty movement and the emergence of nationalism, right-wing identitarianism, and the politics of authoritarianism. Some of the most prominent alt-right voices in the 2017 Charlottesville marches once identified as libertarians, and that fact has been widely covered. So he says it's a fair question to ask, did these individuals ever really believe in a liberal worldview? And again, I'm emphasizing a classical liberal worldview. Were they trolling all along? Were they just deeply confused? Tucker says, I've been interviewed many times on these questions. How did this come to be? And he says, the answer is complex. It was more than six years ago that his article against libertarian brutalism raised a conjecture. Liber a libertarianism rendered simply as nothing more than leave me alone with no larger aspiration for the good life and no interest in the subject of social cooperation could find itself divorced from a historical conception of what the advent of liberty has meant to human life and society as a whole. He says, without that, we fail to develop good instincts for interpreting the world around us. We're even reduced to syllogistic slogans and memes which can be deeply misleading or even feed an illiberal bias. And where does this bias end up? Where are the limits? Jeff Tucker says, I see him daily online. In the name of fighting the left, many have turned in the other direction to embrace an alternative form of identitarianism. Restrictions on trade and migration, curbs on essential civil liberties, even toying with the idea of freedom, and the pr freedom of the press and the rights of private enterprise, all in the name of humiliating and eliminating the enemy. Some go further to celebrate anything they believe the left hates, including even odious causes from the authoritarian past. He says the rhetoric at the extremes approaches nihilism. The press really isn't free, so why not impose restrictions, censorship, and litigated punishments? The borders aren't private, so why not prohibit entry, all, all entry, rather? Some speech doesn't support freedom, so why permit it the rights that freedom entails? Social media companies aren't really private enterprises, so why not force them to carry and promote some accounts that I like? That large company has a government contract, so why not bust it up with antitrust? He says the gradual evolution of language has unleashed all kinds of confusion. Activists denounce the establishment without a clear distinction between government and influential media voices. They'll decry globalism without bothering to distinguish the World Bank from an importer of Chinese fireworks. They promote identitarianism and racial collectivism without the slightest understanding of the illiberal origins and uses of these ideologies in 20th century history. After all, they say there's nothing inherently unlibertarian about casting down an entire people, religion, gender, language, or race, as long as you don't directly use violence. 
Now, he says it takes a special kind of circuitous sophistry to justify in the name of liberty, collectivist animus and state violence against voluntary association. But the history of politics shows people are capable of making huge mental leaps in the service of ideological goals. All it takes is small steps, little excuses, tweaks of principle here and there, seemingly minor compromises. Some element of confirmation bias and you're ready to go. Ready to make as much sense as the old communist slogan that you have to break eggs to make omelets. And then he gives an example. He says, I've heard many libertarians postulate that public spaces ought to be managed in the same way private spaces are. So, for example, if you can reasonably suppose that a private country club can exclude people based on gender, race, and religion, and they certainly have that correct, then it's not unreasonable to suppose that towns or cities or states, which would be private in the absence of government, should be permitted to do the same. In fact, he says it's been claimed the best kind of statesmen are those who manage their realm the same way a CEO manages a corporation or the head of a family runs a household. Now, what's wrong with this thinking? It's perhaps not obvious at first, but consider where you end up if you keep pursuing this. There are no more limits on the state at all. If a state can do anything that a private home, a house of worship, a country club, or a shopping center can do, if any state can impose arbitrary rules, rules of inclusion or codes of speech, dress, and belief, including every manner of mandate and prohibition, the same as any private entity does, huh, such a position essentially belittles 500 years of struggle to restrain the state with general rules, from the Magna Carta to the latest rollbacks in the war on drugs. The whole idea of the liberal revolution is that states must stay within strict bounds, punishing only transgressions against person and property, while private entities must be given maximum liberality in experimentation within rules. And he says this distinction must remain if we're to keep anything that's been known as freedom since the high Middle Ages. Through long struggle, we managed to erect walls between the state and society, and the struggle to keep that high wall never ends. The notion that public actors should behave as if they're private owners is an existential threat to everything that liberalism ever sought to achieve. Jeff Tucker says this is a case that illustrates how easy it is to get off course through small intellectual confusions. As the old scholastics said, you get one point wrong and follow it consistently enough, the next thing you know, an entire worldview unravels. Then you're vulnerable to every manner of manipulation or even corruption, even to the point of marching in parades for totalitarian causes. And he says, this type of intellectual confusion is what enabled and encouraged the migration from libertarianism to the alt-right. It was a failure to see the big picture of what it is that human liberty is all about. And this failure, fueled by anger, opened up many people to a dark world they didn't know or understand. But then he asks the golden question. How can libertarians, and I'm just going to substitute the phrase, how can lovers of liberty again find our center, enliven our mission, feel great about what we do, avoid falling into partisan traps, and protect ourselves from ever being trolled by evil? Well, believe it or not, Jeff Tucker has some really solid answers to that question, and we will get to them. Just the other side of these commercial messages. This is Loving Liberty.
Okay, once again, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Please hold your calls until the next hour. I want to finish up this commentary from Jeffrey Tucker. This is how liberalism can survive left-right polarization. And if that word liberalism makes you go, hey, what are we talking about? Keep in mind, he's talking about classical liberalism. He's talking about essentially just being a lover of liberty. This is very much the tradition in which the the founding fathers would have identified themselves as classical liberals. So he asks the question, how can we avoid falling into partisan traps? How can we protect ourselves from being trolled by evil? How can we find our center and live on our mission, feel great about what we do? And he says, here's my suggestion. We need a new aesthetic of liberty that helps clarify the look and feel of the type of society in which we desire to live. And he says this new aesthetic should replace the barren and politically malleable abstractions that have robbed libertarianism of its bigger, larger vision and made people unable to see when a movement turns in an illiberal direction. He says we need to form in our minds a beautiful vision of the society and world we want to inhabit. Not in its detailed operation like the central planners and not as an end state like the socialist and nationalist utopians but in its ever-evolving institutions that serve human well-being above all else. And he says we need to sense it, we need to see it, get to know it in our minds, love it and long for it, and help others see it too, just as our greatest writers and intellectuals in the past have done before. But that begins with rethinking who we are in light of where we've been in past ages and forming ideological personalities that resist being manipulated by the political actions and reactions all around us. He says a liberty aesthetic that can give us a firmer self-identity and build public support for the great cause consists of five main parts, and this is what he suggests. First, we need a bright outlook on human progress. He says the big picture is that before the age of liberalism, humanity slogged around for some 150,000 years without hope, improvement in living standards, or better or longer lives. Then freedom came. Hope was born. In your own life, you could manage to create improvement. You could live better. You could cause the world around you to adapt to new conditions. You could improve the lives of others. To be volitional meant something for the first time. You could travel. You could earn money and buy things. You could invest and hope for a better life for your children. To have hope in this world and not just the next was the great gift of liberalism to the world. And he says we cannot and should not give this up. Anger, bitterness, resentment, and hate are just not good substitutes. On the contrary, they're corrosive to the heart and soul. He says I've had many discussions with people who were shaking off of statist phase. The number one thing they told me, I was consumed and blinded by anger. It caused me to lose sight of the beauty of liberty. So that's a good thought. Second, he says, we need to stop believing that the enemy of our enemy is our friend. Formal alliances between libertarians and others have been the source of great mischief for decades. Now, he says, there's nothing wrong with cooperating with people from many sides of the political spectrum for the good of liberty. And there's not much point in regarding libertarians as some kind of hermetically sealed group protected from outside influence. Formal alliances are another matter, though. These can tempt people to distort priorities, bury principles, and embrace insidious ideas, all in the interest of preserving the alliance. And this is a particular problem in the area of politics. So you hate candidate A, and you don't particularly like candidate B, but your loathing of A is so strong that you come back even passion. You come to back rather even passionately candidate B. Once having backed B, 
you continue to confirm your bias by cheering everything he or she does following the election. This tendency can rot the brain and debase one's principles to the point that you no longer remember what it is you actually believe. Third, he says we should hope for more peace and less violence. He says the liberal revolution began with an insight, and that was the costs of religious wars are too high. How about we just let everyone believe what they want to believe, providing he or she does not impinge on the rights of others to do the same? And guess what? It worked. This set up a general curiosity toward the uses of peace or violence. Next came freedom of the press, freedom of association, freedom of trade, freedom of movement. It was beautiful and amazing. Reflecting on this history, F.A. Hayek sought to sum up the libertarian spirit as a preference for peace over violence, whether that violence is from private actors or the state. This is why libertarians have high regard for the commercial sector of life. So long as there are clean lines of ownership and the possibility of trade, people are in a position to get a bite to eat and put clothes on their backs without having to kill each other. This makes for a better society. Now, he says, note that this general preference for peace over violence is not put into some algorithmic theorem that is set apart from real human existence. Nor does it enable some ivory tower theorist's perfect insight to solve every human problem. The manner in which the rule of thumb applies needs to be tested according to the circumstances of time and place and the results judged by a market test. Fourth, he says, we should be wary of mass hysterias and populist agitation. Liberty has been vexed as much by public frenzy against the greedy bankers, the weird religion, the foreign enemy, as it has by dictators. Tucker says much of the time they work together to curb the liberties of the people as demagogues use mass movements or insiders use ambitious leaders to obtain power. He says when you see mobs of people gathered and screaming and some leader behind a microphone yelling and the anger reaches a fevered pitch, you can have a sense that it is not liberalism at work here. Ludwig von Mises in 1927 noted this at the end of his great work on the free commonwealth. He said that liberalism can be recognized not by flags, songs, marches, and uniforms, but by its reasoning. And to this, Jeff Tucker says, we will win the day because we have the arguments. He says, I put my faith in the belief that Mises was right and that only Mises himself was never more convincing, that Mises himself was never more convincing than when he described in beautiful prose the glorious achievements of freedom in the past and its marvelous potential for the future. And fifth and finally, we need a central theme that is beautiful and inspiring. What is the central theme of the aesthetic of liberty? It is this, emancipation. This has been our great contribution to humanity. It was the libertarian idea that brought about emancipation from rule by dynasty, from feudalism, from mercantilism, from theocracy, from slavery, from institutional misogyny, from censorship, from war, from all forms of state control. But then he asks, and what are we working toward? What has been the point of all this progress made toward liberty in the past? It is about the aspiration for the universal human dignity. That's the theme and the test. Does what I believe ennoble human life? Does it create conditions for greater dignity and opportunity for all? Does it make life better for others and myself? Jeff Tucker says these are the questions we need to ask ourselves about everything we believe and everything we do in the name of liberty. He says if we get this straight, prefer peace to violence, adhere to principle, and rely on argument and not on noise to win the day, the rest will take care of itself. Why does it matter? Well, people are being misled. 
they believe that the alternative to the left is the right or that the left is the alternative to the right, forgetting that both paradigms emerged from the same anti-liberal framework that opposes the greatest transformation in the history of the human race. Actually, he says it's worse than that. Our generation is not entirely aware of what they are buying when they rally uncritically but understandably around anti-leftist causes without asking what these causes are actually for. They rally around fashionable memes and follow articulate leaders and one day find themselves carrying ethno-state flags and screaming bloodthirsty slogans. Further, they come to imagine that freedom can be achieved through statist means, to which Jeff Tucker says it has never been so. Now, he says none of this has to be. What the world desperately needs is a new and conscious movement that's devoted to a classical form of liberalism applied in the 21st century. And he says this movement, however informal and focused more on ideas than organizing, should be enlivened by ideals. It should optimistically celebrate free enterprise, trade, and peace, and recognize that the magic of freedom is revealed most profoundly in its capacity to create harmony out of diversity, strong cultural ties out of spontaneous association, and prosperity from the creative actions of individuals in an open-ended social order. A new liberalism needs to recognize that liberty is about building a good society in which everyone can thrive in peace. And he concludes by saying such a movement needs to detach itself from the war between the right and the left. We need to eschew the hatreds and revenge fantasies fueled by today's political struggles and instead embrace a liberty aesthetic as a path that transcends modern politics and offers pure light in an otherwise dark world. He says the political frenzies of our time will pass from the scene and leaving the question of what paradigm should form the new orthodoxy, a socio-political worldview that's built on integrity, peace and the highest longings for the well-being of all people. Liberalism, says Jeff Tucker, is the classical tradition in the classical tradition needs to be there. Intellectually robust, honest and truth telling, animated by the highest ideals to provide the alternative to left and right that we so desperately need. What a fabulous essay. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Check it out at LovingLiberty.net. That's where we'll post this for podcast. Stick around. Hour two of Loving Liberty is on the way right after news. News. 